You're listening to the Canada launch of the 2020 Global Peace Index, hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies and the Institute for Economics and Peace. Hello, everyone. My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Rights Studies. We're very pleased today to bring together a panel of experts to discuss uh, the latest Global Peace Index. This is the Canada launch of the Global Peace Index, the first time ever. Uh, we're joined with, um, first and foremost, we're joined with uh, Sarah Strubantz, Director of Operations for Europe and the Middle East uh, at the Institute for Economics and Peace. Uh, we also have Senator Mary Lou McFedrin. Uh, Senator McFedrin has been an active human rights leader at the Canadian Senate working primarily, uh, sorry, not primarily, but on many issues, but including most notably the Rohingya crisis and the Rohingya refugees. Uh, we're very pleased to have you with us, Senator. And we all must say she's also the founder of the Institute for International Women's Rights. We also are very lucky today to have Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire. Uh, for those of you, I'm sure you all know, but General Dallaire is Canada's humanitarian hero. He's a distinguished senior fellow at MIGS. Um, he's a former Senator. He was the head of the UN uh, peacekeeping mission in Rwanda during the 94 Rwandan genocide, and he is the uh, founder of the Romeo Dallaire Child Soldiers Initiative. Thank you for joining us, General Dallaire. Uh, and last but not least, we have a distinguished uh, a Canadian, former Canadian diplomat, Ferry de Kirkov. Uh, Ferry um, has a long distinct career uh, working for the Canadian government. He served as an ambassador to Indonesia and East Timor as well. He's also the ambassador to Pakistan. He's now a fellow at the University of Ottawa and also a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. So thank you all for joining us. And I would now like to pass the floor to Sarah Strubantz to give an overview of the Global Peace Index. Well, Kyle, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's uh, much appreciated. And uh, I'm really honored to be uh, sitting on this webinar this afternoon and presenting the uh, results of the Global Peace Index 2020 with such a, a distinguished uh, panel. It's really a, a delight and, and, and a privilege. Um, so let, yeah, let's get into the, the results of the 2020 Global Peace Index, uh, measuring peace in a complex uh, world. So first of all, a few words about the Institute for Economics and Peace. We are an institute, a think tank that is doing research for a lot of international organizations, uh, sister think tanks, governments and uh, uh, non-governmental organizations. Our work is included in thousands of university courses, a lot of book references also, and a lot of, I would say, media reach uh, to make sure that the results of our research is spread throughout the world and has a global, a global impact. Uh, we have launched this uh, Global Peace Index 2020 on the 10th of June and already reached uh, close to uh, 6 billion media reach in the first four to five days with more than 2,050 uh, interviews uh, worldwide. Uh, our head office is based in Sydney, Australia. So this is where the research team is located. And we have uh, offices throughout the world in New York and Brussels, close to very important international organizations, supported by offices in Diego in Mexico City. Mexico City, because we produce annually a national peace index of Mexico, the Mexico Peace Index. And about one and a half year ago, we also opened an office in Southern Africa, in Zimbabwe, in Arare. Uh, this is the 14th edition of the Global Peace Index. It's ranking 163 countries, which represent about 99.7% of the world population. We are using 23 different indicators weighted on a scale from one to five. We developed this index ourselves and it is guided and overseen by a panel of international experts. So those indicators, those 23 indicators, are grouped in three specific domains. We have six measures on ongoing domestic and international conflict. We have 10 measures of societal safety and security, and also seven measures of militarization, in which we find one positive indicator, and that is the funding of peacekeeping operations, UN peacekeeping operations. So let's have a look on the key findings of this year's Global Peace Index. This interactive map is uh, to be found on our website called visionofhumanity.org and is showing you with a color code the most peaceful countries and regions of the world, the dark green and the lighter green, 
and of course uh, shifting to red and dark red, the least peaceful countries and the least peaceful regions of this world. This map is interactive. This means you can just click on each and every country on the map and you will get access to all the data to the ranking with the uh, uh, traffic light uh, color code system, uh, really giving you all the rankings per indicator. It's really an amazing interactive map. So this year, we saw that the average level of uh, global peacefulness decreased by 0.34%. Over a period of the last 12 years, this is the ninth time that we have recorded a decrease. We saw that approximately the, main, the same number of countries improved and deteriorated. The improvements last year were due to terrorism impact. So we saw a dramatic decrease of the terrorism impact by minus 75%. Uh, this is a continued trend after the peak of the impact of terrorism in 2014, with more than 33,500 deaths in 2014. 8,000 last year. So this is a trend of a five to six year with a dramatic, dramatic decrease last year. Same thing for homicides. This is a longer term tre uh, trend also. And weapons, imports and exports, this did, uh, so there were less import and export of weapons. So this is an improvement on the index. The deteriorations primarily driven by the political terror scale. So this is extrajudicial um, uh, killing and imprisonment also, torture, uh, these kind of things. Refugees and IDPs, we are at the peak with more than 70 million worldwide. And also we saw that internal conflict uh, intensified over the past uh, year. So now the highlights. And I mean, this is not a surprise because it has been like this for about, uh, I mean, I would say from the start uh, of the global peace index. So Iceland, number one, New Zealand, number two, and then uh, a full range of uh, European country and Canada also always in the top 10 of our Global Peace Index. The largest improvement, Azerbaijan and Armenia, this is clearly linked to this uh, border um, uh, conflict that uh, has been settled in the, in the past year. So that's a very positive evolution and it has its repercussions also on the regional improvement, the largest one being recorded for Russia and Eurasia. Uh, Europe remains the most peaceful region of the world. Uh, despite ongoing political instability and, again, a small deterioration in uh, peacefulness. On the other end of the index, uh, Afghanistan remains, and that's now for the second time uh, in a row, the least peaceful nation in the world, and it has deteriorated for over a decade. Uh, Afghanistan is also the number one uh, country on our global terrorism index, so experiencing the largest impact of terrorism in uh, 2019. Uh, Benin and Nicaragua, the largest deterioration. Nicaragua is there for the second year in a row. Uh, clearly, uh, internal conflict and political stability at the root of this deterioration for Benin, something absolutely comparable. So internal instability, political instability, but also the influence of uh, terrorist groups in, in this region. Burkina Faso, was, Burkina Faso was there last year, Benin this year. Uh, this is also some kind of a trend that is emerging in this part of the world. South America and Central America, again, like last year, uh, the largest regional deteriorations, the MENA region, so Middle East and North Africa, remains the least peaceful region of the world. We saw an improvement of the number of deaths from terrorism, as I said before, but also in internal conflicts with uh, some international troops being uh, pulled out of uh, those conflict zones. The 10 most peaceful countries, so as I said before, Iceland, New Zealand, uh, European uh, countries, uh, Canada is up there, uh, ranking number six, Japan, Switzerland. Uh, what we see on the top of the Global Peace Index is, um, I would say, concentration of liberal democracies. So liberal democracies are able to produce peaceful uh, societies, of course, uh, this rule always confirmed with one or the other exception, but really the vast majority of countries in, on the top of the global peace index are liberal democracies. On the other hand, on, in the bottom of the index, clearly those countries still engaged in conflict, still fragilized by, by conflict and destabilized uh, by, I would say, the current situation in the region in which they, they are located, but also special uh, tensions in their own countries. 
Now, if you open the time window to a, to a decade or even a, a bit more, I already spoke about those nine deteriorations over the past 12 years. This is clearly shown also in this slide with a year-on-year -year change of the levels of peacefulness. So this leads us to the conclusion that over a period of about uh, 12 years, so since 2008, we have seen a peace decline by 2.5%. What we also have seen is a widening gap between the most peaceful and the least peaceful countries. And this uh, slide is also introducing the next one, showing you that uh, peaceful countries were still improving the levels of peacefulness, but by only 2% average, while those who deteriorated in peace really were sliding into the violence trap, did that with almost 13% average. And this is why we see a widening gap between the most and the least peaceful countries in the world that started in 2012. We have uh, also produced special research last year on civil unrest worldwide, and we have seen that uh, from 2011 to 2019, the number of riots, general strikes, and anti-government, so the number of civil unrest, uh, increased by 244%. When you look specifically at riots, it's 282%, and for the general strikes, 821%. 96 countries recorded a violent demonstration in 2019, and I would say the reasons why people are taking their grievances in the streets are very, uh, there is a variety of those reasons, a really wide range of those issues. Um, Europe had the largest number of protests, uh, but 65% uh, of those, those protests were non-violent. So we clearly see that uh, European citizens are really using their, their, their right to, uh, to protest, to demonstrate, but are doing this in a non-violent way uh, most of the time. This, is, this trend is different in other parts of the world where we saw more and more violent demonstration taking up. And I would say that the tensions that created this decrease in peacefulness over the last uh, 12 years, but also that led to this evolution in the number of civil unrest, well, the impeding economic recession uh, that will uh, that lies ahead of us, you know, linked to the COVID-19 crisis, is going to have an impact on the likelihood of such demonstrations and riots. Every time we produce an index at the uh, Institute for Economics and Peace, we are also estimating, always a very conservative estimation, we are also estimating the cost or the impact, the economic impact of violence. For 2020, this estimation is uh, at 14.5 trillion worldwide. This is about 10.6% of the world GDP or about 1,900 US dollars per person. So just imagine what could be done if we would decrease this cost of violence by 1% or 10%. 1% of the cost of violence represents the global budget for, over eight, uh, development, for overseas development aid. 10% of the cost of violence, the impact of violence, represents the total budget for foreign direct investment. So just imagine what you could do if we could reduce this economic impact of violence. And this is the breakdown of the economic impact of violence. And we see that about 80% or more than 80% is really invested in preventing violence, or at least preventing the threat of violence. So we have military expenditure for about 40%, internal security for about 34, 35% that is complemented by some uh, private security and military uh, companies and the expenditures made in there. The direct impact would come from homicides for almost 8%, suicides, as we all, uh, we still consider this to uh, as being a violent termination of life. Conflict, violent crime is going to uh, finalize this or complete this uh, breakdown. We also did specific research on COVID-19 and peace, uh, basically looking at uh, both the levels of positive peace of countries uh, impacted. And positive peace is a concept that is uh, that has been developed by the Institute for Economics and Peace, and that is looking at the attitudes, the institutions, and the process to put in place to create, maintain, and sustain peace, and eventually get the economic, social, governance, and ecological benefits of a more peaceful situation. So we looked at the level of positive peace, but also at, uh, I would say, the economic resilience of those uh, countries and societies, looking at four different preconditions, economic preconditions. So we looked at the level of structural debt, 
in, in a country. We looked at the level of unemployment. We looked at the dependence on international trade. And we also looked at the percentage of GDP that uh, was generated by taxation. So those were the economic preconditions. So one first correlation that we, that we noticed is the link between large international airport hubs in the world, and especially in, in Europe, when you look at uh, northern Italy, when you look at Spain, when you look at Heathrow, for example, New York in the United States, even uh, Brussels, where I'm uh, ac actually based, that is really like a uh, I would say a central platform or a central hub uh, within uh, within Europe, you clearly see that those countries really interconnected in the global world with a lot of uh, air transport movement also at a lot of uh, or a large propagation of COVID-19 on their soil. Uh, we estimate or we assess that most of the indicators in the global peace index but also in the positive peace index, 24 indicators linked to eight pillars of positive peace, those indicators are expected to deteriorate. Uh, there might be one area where we might see uh, some improvement. This is military expenditure. As countries are redirecting uh, funds and uh, budget lines towards the, the, the economies that needs to be supported, that needs to be uh, saved also at some time. Therefore also, we might expect or we might hope that uh, some of the regional and global powers uh, implicated in, uh, in, in conflicts or in proxy wars or protracted conflicts might also redirect some of the budget uh, away from those, uh, from those conflicts. Uh, we have seen that some types of crime uh, uh, had a re temporary reduction, especially during the, the lockdown, but we also estimate that, uh, uh, you know, these type of uh, organized crime organization or even international terrorists organization use this uh, period of time to uh, to reorganize and to uh, uh, restructure their uh, their organization we saw also in the same period of time other forms of violence emerge and that would be domestic violence suicide and mental illness that increased also uh, U.S. and Europe are expected to see an increase in political uh, uh, instability. So we are expecting more civil unrest, you know, to ventilate the frustrations that were are linked to the, first the lockdown, but then also to the economic crisis that is now emerging. Um, of course, those the level of violence that is going to be used in those uh, uh, demonstrations, this civil unrest, will depend on the capacity of, the, of uh, each and every country to deal and to cope with the impact of COVID-19. Uh, the US-China relations that were already deteriorating before the pandemic, uh, well, will be uh, affected even more now. We, we kind of imagine an accelerating effect or an exacerbation of this uh, deterioration because of the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And this will have a clear impact on multinational organizations such as WHO, WTO, and even the UN Security Council. Uh, the trend that we have seen in the past year, and this was an increased uh, financial support to UN peacekeeping operations, unfortunately, this trend might be broken this year. and We might see some of the funds dedicated to uh, those operations to be redirected to uh, uh, economy saving operations or economy support operations. Uh, another, I would say, other bad news, we might also see that parts of the budget uh, allocated to overseas development aid are going to be reallocated to those uh, economic programs. And therefore, uh, this might have a very negative effect on uh, fragile countries that really rely on this overseas development aid. And especially in the light of positive peace that is showing that you can invest in peace and that you still uh, are creating economic growth. I think this is a mistake we should not make in, in the future. We also see that countries with low credit ratings might get uh, problems to borrow money and save their economy and therefore recovery from the economic crisis after the pandemic will last longer. And also the uh, uh, civil unrest might be more intense. Uh, this is uh, a graph of what I explained in the beginning of uh, this section of my presentation. So this is clearly showing you uh, those countries that uh, will do well in the, in the blue box where with high levels of positive peace and favorable economic preconditions. And of course, also uh, the other side of the spectrum in the uh, red box where 
uh, we find countries having lower levels of positive peace, but also less favorable uh, economic preconditions. Um, I'm really worried about the black box, uh, the the red box, when I see two regional powers uh, in this in this black box with. Uh, red box with brazil and south africa so this is not uh giving us the positive perspectives for those regions in the, the future um this is a last slide in this section showing us the answers to previous large economic shocks of the past uh, almost 50 years and we have seen that usually after such shocks uh, the interest rates uh, would have uh, been, would, would decrease of about uh, 5% point normally to re-inject capital into the economies. This is a kind of a miracle trick that will not be applicable this time because before the start of the economic crisis, we uh, already had very low interest rates, average 1.5%. So, you know, this, this variable will not be able to be used uh, this time, unfortunately. Uh, Finally, a last portion of the Global Peace Index is presenting first results of the Peace and Ecological Threat Index, so the ETR. The, this is a publication that is going to be uh, finalized by the end of August, early September, and presented at the UN General Assembly uh, at the occasion of the 75th anniversary uh, over there. So clearly, we are, we are witnessing increased uh, level of natural disasters worldwide. White. And when uh, you look at uh, the number of refugees today, so 70 million, uh, there is like a distribution there, 60% generated by uh, natural disaster and the pressure on the environment, and about 40% generated by, by conflict. So we clearly need to identify this as a, 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 a next stress factor on uh, migration. When you look at uh, water risk, related to water risk, you clearly see also that uh, countries or regions that are at the moment uh, on the, in the bottom of the global peace index are also those regions and countries most uh, already today affected and impacted by uh, water scarcity. Uh, the MENA region, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, uh, this is uh, closing my presentation. Of course, you can find all those uh, results back on our website and uh, they, those are also promoted on our uh, social media. Uh, before uh, leaving the floor, I would give you a couple of figures that are related to this ecological threat register. Today, we see that about 2.3 uh, billion people are living in areas and countries that are already exposed to high to very high levels of climate hazards. About 50%, a bit more of than 50% of those 2.3 billion, so 1.25 billion people, also live in a country that is in the bottom 40 of the global peace index. So we see that several strategic factors influencing peace and security are interconnected and interconnecting, uh, creating a superstorm that is uh, that is lying ahead of us in uh, in the future. Another staggering figure that uh, comes with uh, the ETR, it's about migration that is going to be generated in the next 30 years. So we look at 2050, which is basically tomorrow, and uh, we assessed or we estimated that about 143 million people will be displaced because of the effects of climate change in the next 30 years. So this is tripling the amount of refugees that we are currently experiencing uh, today. Uh, 143 million, 86 million would come or would be generated in Sub-Saharan Africa, 40 million in South Asia, and 17 million in Central America and the Caribbean. And we can all imagine where those people will move to. Thank you very much for your attention. I'm really looking forward to the experts' uh, um, participation now and then the debates that it's that are going to be uh, sparked off by their intervention and i'm also looking forward to the uh, to the q a thank you very much thank you thank you very much serge it was a detailed comprehensive view of what's happening in the world and highlighting some of the um, new challenges that 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 government civil society are going to have to deal with in the un in the years ahead i'd now like to ask senator mefedrin to first make her opening comments 
Thank you very much, Kyle, and, and thank you for the invitation. I'm very honored to be speaking to you today from the unceded territory of the Algonquin First Nations here in Canada. And I also want to thank you, Serge, for um, a, a brilliant presentation. I, I can't say that my spirits are lifted up as a result of it, um, but I think that what it speaks to most of all for me as a, a Canadian uh, is the need for highly strategic investment on our part. We lost our bid for the UN Security Council seat um, just within the last 48 hours. And I think what that opens up for us though, as a country, is to really focus on what we're already doing well. And in a number of the venues that are multilateral, many of them UN-based, but not exclusively that, Canada has been doing for a long time now a lot of the convening and gathering and associations of friends and supporters built around the concept of peace building. And in the last five years, we have been doing that through the lens of a feminist foreign policy. And I think we just need to do more of that. And one of the reasons we need to do more of that is that the Security Council itself for almost every major conflict that we have learned about in your presentation is basically deadlocked. And it is debatable how much we would have been able to have accomplished on the Security Council. It, it didn't happen. And now we have numerous other avenues. And by following through on our feminist foreign policy, what it allows us to do as a country is to reach out, to continue to reach out, to invest in women and children, to not invest in arms, to not contribute to the escalation of the militarization, not just of military forces, but police forces. And this takes me home to the debate that we had in the Senate of Canada last night, an emergency debate called by one of our black senators that went until after midnight last night, where it was very clear that it's the militarization of police forces and the investment that lawmakers have allowed to happen in Canada that has been a huge contributor to the killings that we have seen of indigenous peoples and people of color. And if we looked at just the last three months, um, we have death after death after death and at the hands of a militarized police force. And this gives us, I think, an opportunity to really look at the impact on Canada and the way in which we may be still contributing to militarization in other countries. And with a serious feminist foreign policy, we have to stop that. For example, we've started again to sell arms to Saudi Arabia. We have to stop that. The intersection that we see in sustainable development goals and the way in which we have the interlinking with uh, gender equality and the various measurements of peace and youth leadership is also a really big part of what we can be doing in the world even when our deficit topped a trillion. Um, declared yesterday. So the way in which investments are made are going to have to become even more strategic. And where we have the hot spots or the most at risk areas of the world where we already have a presence, this is our opportunity to take even a bigger look and a, a bigger investment in women and children and families and communities so that we are perpetuating the understanding that peace is about human security. Thank you, I'm looking forward to the Q&A, and I'm very pleased to be part of this panel with both um, Ferry and Romeo, um, and again, thanks for the invitation. Thank you, Senator McEdrin. I would like now ask um, Lieutenant General Romeo Valer to take the floor. It's such a comprehensive and, in fact, uh, succinct uh, presentation of the state of peace in the world. And I applaud 
the Center for a first-class uh, piece of work, and Serge uh, Braboud, it was very, very well done. It is, however, interesting that um, the aim is to give the state of, of affairs uh, and raising with us uh, the concerns of uh, the deteriorating scenarios that exist and where they could even continue to amplify and get worse. What I'm looking for and looking at is very much uh, one of what is the prevention uh, of, in fact, the uh, deterioration of peace? What What uh, is, in fact, in uh, what we've been presented, uh, the essence of prevention? And in my uh, estimation, it comes down to a theory that uh, was articulated uh, in some time ago in the 90s by, uh, at the time, our foreign minister, uh, Lloyd Axworthy, around the, around the millennium period, where he coined uh, very much the human security agenda. And in that human security agenda spoke of the multidisciplinary relationship uh, that must exist amongst a variety of disciplines uh, that are part of societies. And so in that, uh, in trying to uh, give focus to that, uh, I've been watching and been engaged very much in looking at how we can get children as the upfront indicator uh, of, in fact, how uh, we are moving in peace. The use of children as, as weapons of war uh, it still continues, and I'm involved very much in that. But it is that that not concrete commitment to children moving into adulthood with the tools and the opportunities in order to thrive and ultimately to be able, uh, in some cases, to survive. I think that is a weakness in our ability to move humanity in a generational peace context versus a sort of punctual or uh, ephemeral uh, sense of peace that uh, can explode at any time. And so integrating all these different disciplines into a whole new conceptual framework of what peace is uh, and the tools that are required in order to sustain peace is to me uh, an ambition that Canada could and should be pursuing. What is the new integrated concept, fundamental concept of peace in the world? And how do we get all these different players from NGOs to humanitarians to uh, military to security forces to diplomacy to economics? To, how do they really want to integrate into something new? And so I'm articulating the need for a new lexicon of how, in fact, we can define peace, but mostly in how we focus all these different disciplines into creating a whole new leadership that can function in an integrated environment in order to pursue peace. The closest we've gotten to prevention was at one point when I was part of Kofi Annan's Genocide Prevention Advisory Group with Desmond Tutu and Garth Evans. It was just when R2P came out which had a very, very important statement. And it said that the individual is sovereign, not the state. And so state sovereignty and state constructs are not necessarily the tools of the future. And that's part of the argument I'm trying to bring forward is that we've entered a world without borders and the electronic revolution has permitted that. And those who know it best and can maximize this extraordinary revolution are the youth, the young people, engaging them and building a capability of respecting and engaging in a deliberate way, not in a sort of a sort of peripheral way and a, a sort of picturesque way, but in a responsible way. The youth of nations 
that make up in so many, over 50% of the population, getting them deliberately engaged in shaping that future and using the tools of a new era. And so I am very much an optimist in regards to what the youth revolution and their activism is going to bring to advancing a far more multidisciplinary, integrated capability of humanity in this new philosophical fundamental framework uh, of what peace, but particularly how we can prevent conflict uh, without having to resort uh, to the use of weapons and destroying each other. All humans are equal. There's not one human more human than the other. And with that premise, the respect of humanity can be built far beyond what nation states and sovereignty uh, has, to my estimation, still been a limiting factor. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, General Dallaire. I'd now like to ask Ambassador Ferry de Kirchhoff to uh, make his opening statements. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, first of all, Serge has just proven how much accurate and precise data are still absolutely essential to understand the world. I'm, of course, having been the champion of our failed Security Council campaign 10 years ago, I've seen the results, uh, as the senator said, just uh, 48 hours ago. And, and it, it brings to mind that maybe for Canada, some of the traditional approaches that we've taken are no longer necessary, are, are trademark. Not that we can't make some punctual contribution, for instance, the way we, where we can make a difference, the way we did in Mali with the helicopters and our 200 troops, but we also have to be able to take quick decision. But I think not, not, not we, it's not just a matter of reviewing our foreign policy as, as we've done so often in, in my years in the department, but I think we've got to think outside of the existing box. And, and one of the things that always comes to my mind is that we are a technology savvy country and, and we've got to use the, that capability. We need to look at how technologies will change the nature and the location of conflict. Serge has given some very good hints at some of those dimensions, but now we've got to operationalize those data in terms of a kind of a new alliance that we would build because we've got to deal with connectivity, we've got to deal with the, the memetics, which is that kind of new concept. Uh, uh, and and, and it's, it, it has to do with the role of the social media, the, the, the surge of terror through social media, the, this notion of a, of a war of ideas and information war. So we, we've got to look at what is called neurocognitive warfare today in order to think to a new approach, uh, you know, and, and, and joining, of course, uh, Serge and the Senator and Romeo, uh, you know, there are new weapons out there that we've got to start to think about and, and look at, is there a way to develop arm, con arm controls measures, whether it's autonomous weapons, you know, Obama, for instance, that we all love and adore, he was the prince of the use of drones that kill at distance. Uh, cyber offense and defense are issues that we have to look at. So I and 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 of course all that underpinned by what I would call the the the, the legal framework in terms of of ethics. Now I to the senator I, I just want to highlight one an important point she made about the the women the you know the, the feminist policy and and this is one thing where women and peace of, and security is an issue where Canada has to really do something. We're trying at the University of Ottawa to, to create a center dealing with training and research in women, peace and security. And I think that's a very critical dimension as well. Now, when you look at development, and I, when I was ambassador in Egypt during the Arab Spring, instead of looking at the democratic dimensions of it, uh, because all those good institutions were involved, the American ones, of course. But to me, the issue 
that can change is the economics even more than our effort to spur democracy. Look at what happened in Egypt. So I think we have to review that at a time where development assistance is going by the wayside. But I think we've got to find a way, and, and again, that's part of Canadian foreign policy, to reassure, as it were, or to address the dysfunctionality of, of the political, economic, and social uh, in, in, in developing countries. Uh, another issue related to my, my, my preoccupation with the conflict dimension is to what extent can a, a kind of like-minded group of country ally against vile non-state actors? The non-state actor has to be, to, has to be really considered uh, as, as much as possible. And I was very struck by Serge's uh, this notion of investing in, in controlling violence. And, and that's where I come back also to connectivity, internet and whatnot. Because in a post-factual world, when you have trolls, when you have all that, there, that's a dimension that has to be looked at. And, and I think we've got to broaden this perspective in Canadian foreign policy. And, and I, I'd be delighted to continue to, to think through some of those issues because we live in a new world, and, and I, we can talk ad nauseum about China, the China factor, the change of value system, the movement or, or the paradigm of the Atlantic moving into the Pacific. But that, that's a broad picture. But within those, we've got to use our capability, as I said, from a technology, quantum physics and what, to counter the new, the, the new dimensions of threats in this world. Thank you. Thank you very much for those comments, Ferry. Um, I, I particularly found your comments on the neurocognition warfare um, very fascinating. We are seeing social media platforms and emerging tech have a greater impact on global peace. And um, we've had some discussions with Serge team about the need for a, a digital peace index to look at how, um, how cyber and social media is being used in all sorts of ways of modern warfare. So now I would like to actually start maybe facilitating a question among uh, all three of you. And my first question is this. Um, there has been a 12 year trend of a deteriorating of peace across the world. Um, that's highlighted in the Global Peace Index. Um, how can Canada reverse this trend and which countries should we focus on? Who would like to be the first one to try to answer that question? Should I go with Senator and then uh, General Dallaire and then Ferry, why don't we do that? So Senator McEdrin, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, I think that the only way we can realistically get beyond the massive debt that is being struggled with all over the world, um, intensified hugely by the COVID-19 pandemic, which is far from over. You know, we, uh, we seem to somehow treat it as, as something in the past and it isn't. The numbers are still going up in most parts of the world and the costs are still going up. So it really becomes a question of strategic investments with reduced resources. And I think if we've learned anything in peace and international development, we've learned that investments in women are investments in children and families and communities and human security. And so we also have, I think, learned, and I think we have good research that supports this, that where you support the leadership or the attaining of leadership, and by this I don't mean the dominant male hero general model, I mean the kind of leadership that is much more common when women lead. Uh, I would also just parenthetically note that it's the countries with women in leadership that have done the best under the COVID-19 crisis uh, in terms of, of getting ahead of it and lower, lowest rates in the world. And so by making this kind of strategic investment, we're also investing in peace. And we're also, frankly, spending less money than we do every time we try to bring in a militarized approach to somehow enforcing peace. Thank you, uh, Senator McEdrin. I now would like to ask uh, General Dallaire to um, take the floor. 
Yeah, thank, thanks, Kyle. Um, the, the first thing is is that I I agree with the senator that uh, COVID nineteen is a worldwide factor uh, that uh, cannot be ignored, uh, nor is the full impact of that uh, yet felt. Uh, I think at best. Uh, in our war against that uh, virus, we are at, in a sort of a truce period uh, before we see really a second potential onslaught and, and worsening of the situation until at least the vaccine is established. So there's, a, there's an uncertainty on really uh, what can you put together uh, over the next shorter while uh, in order to uh, continue to advance some of the initiatives of the past, uh, the feminist uh, agenda is one that the Canada has presented. I would argue that uh, it not necessarily has achieved all what we wanted to do because really, to me, uh, women, children, uh, women, peace and security is intimately linked with children, peace and security. Uh, and that side of the house, the children's side, the generational side, uh, has not achieved uh, anywhere near the same uh, level of interest nor engagement by uh, foreign affairs and by our policies and our certainly investment internationally. There is a, a need uh, to uh, distinguish between, we use a military in, intervention in, in keeping 110,000 peacekeepers around the world uh, to uh, a uh, simply preventive mode uh, that we hope by uh, development. There, there is no more one or the other solution. They're all totally integrated in an ability to achieve the future. What I am seeing is, is that we're not very skilled yet at presenting a new think on how to put those things together. Uh, we still have the stovepiping of different agencies and different organizations and different disciplines in the field, spending and doing a lot of work, but often being undercut. Uh, we, we were out there building schools and we create the uh, safe school declaration, and yet we're still letting uh, people blow them apart by non-state actors and even state actors uh, uh, engaged in that. There is not an integrated, comprehensive new framework with a new set of tools that can, in fact, articulate the complexity and the ambiguity that's out there now, exacerbated by COVID, but also uh, not finding enough winners in order to be able to prove that you can prevent conflict and that you can gain points politically uh, and nationally and worldwide and humanity-wide by prevention. How do you get people to invent, invest in prevention when that is by far uh, one of the most difficult dimensions and the riskiest ones for politicians to be involved with? Uh, and so the index is a great reference point, however, uh, to assist us down that road. Thank you, General Dallaire. I would now like to ask uh, Ferry de Kirchhoff to take the floor. Ferry? Yeah, very, very quick comment because I think some, some of the comments just made are, are absolutely excellent. I, I think the I have to put a caveat on one fundamental issue is what happens uh, in uh, November at the election in the United States. Can we rebuild multilateralism if we have four more years of Donald Trump? Or can we actually rebuild some kind of multilateralism if Joe Biden wins? And I, and I think that's the big question mark, which uh, I don't know whether Mr. Bolton has helped one side or the other. But I, I, I think what, what uh, Romero was also underscoring in a way is the dirt of real policy thinking. Uh, I, I don't want to lament our own political system and leaders, but, you know, speeches of feel-good speeches are very nice, but you, we, we seem in, 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 Canadian, in the Canadian government to be in what is, I would call, a program delivery mode with very little policy thinking. And, I, and, and, and in a way, 
if you look at even our candidacy to the Security Council, there was not a great new idea. There were all the nice things, uh, you know, we talked about the environment, uh, we talked about women, we talked about that, but there was very little connection between all that. It didn't seem that we had a whole of government and a whole of world concept of what it is that we want to achieve. And, 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 and we are very, very nervous about actually lamenting what is going on elsewhere, for instance, China or, or again, the U United States. So Canada is hampered now. Can it be freed uh, at the election in, in November in the US? I hope so. But I think that there's, there's a very fundamental inability to look beyond the next four years of a, shall I be elected or not? Uh, even the infrastructure project that we so badly need, we've seen very little of it because, of course, the bean counters in government are becoming so over-controlling that there's no, no risk-taking. And, and, and this is one of the things that upsets me from a societal point of view. You've got major problems in the world, and yet we're more timid today than we've ever been before. Thank you, Ferry. Um, I, I think the comment of looking past four years is, is incredibly important um, and, and to have a long vision and that we stick to it. Um, before we go to the next question, I know Serge Strubantz of the Institute for Economic Peace had, um, had a comment to make. Serge? Yes, thank you very much. Um, I spoke about positive peace in my, in my presentation. This is a concept that has been developed over several years, really from the very start of uh, the Global Peace Index and the Institute for Economics and Peace, we wanted to develop uh, a framework, a concept that uh, could be used to create, maintain and sustain peace. So the Global Peace Index is measuring negative peace, the absence of violence or the fear of violence. Positive peace is systems thinking applied to peace. So we have discovered that these eight pillars of positive peace, all interconnected, when they are triggered at the same time, all eight, we see a transformational effect and we see the develop economic development, social governance and ecological development. Uh, so it's really, we have identified uh, within those eight pillars, three indicators per pillars, but we can go into, into much more depth of the analysis and really for national peace reviews, uh, go into the detail of 200, 250 uh, indicators really those are the indicators correlating the most with the creation of more peace with the creation of more resilience with the decrease of grievances within uh, within societies and the positive peace index that we have been uh, produced for several years now uh, is a measure of this is a measure of those investments in a more peaceful society and in a more peaceful world. it can even be used to replace uh, the measurement and the quantification of some of the of the SDGs and certainly some of the indicators of SDG uh, 16. Um, usually, unfortunately, it's, it's uh, the economic uh, driver that is really convincing governments to invest in more positive peace because we, we, we have been able at IEP to quantify the correlation between both the levels of uh, positive peace, but also the increase in GDP. And usually the sentence we use is 1% increase in positive peace correlates with a 3% increase in, in GDP. And this is valid also in other ESG factors. And, and to, to close this, uh, this comment, uh, most of the positive, the vast, vast majority of positive peace training that we have already been doing throughout the world concentrated on women and youth drivers for change when it comes to peace. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Serge. Um, in line with uh, Ferry's previous comment about thinking long-term, thinking beyond the next election cycle, um, we have a question uh, from someone uh, on Facebook who says, the report says by 2050, the Global Peace Index mentions by 2050, there'll be an estimated 143 million people displaced due to climate change. Um, how can we start planning for this and what should be done? Uh, this is a long-term thinking of a major problem that's going to destabilize many countries. Um, how can we start working on this long-term um, issue of uh, climate-induced displacement? Senator McFedrin, or who would like to start? Maybe uh, General Dallaire? Uh, 
I would like to to approach that problematic by the fact that uh, I had a conversation with the president of Rwanda not that long ago, uh, who in a passing statement said, you know, he said, said uh, uh, there is no uh, immigration problem from my country. He said, because we're trying to put inside the country everything that people need to thrive. And so uh, the uh, major dimension of trying to reduce uh, and to look at uh, immigration into the future is in fact, how do these nation states build up their capacity in order to be able to handle the future. And it is in my estimation that there is enormous amount of risk of them not being able to pull that together. And nations like ours who could be leading in such thinking uh, are not in the forefront anymore. I think we've got it our diplomatic core and we've got a risk adverse uh, uh, bureaucracy uh, and worse than that, we lack decision power, leadership decision power, in order to bring innovative new ideas to the to the to the table. Thank you, General Dallaire. Uh Who else would like to take a status question, Senator Mefedrin? Um I've just recently tabled a bill in uh, in the Senate of Canada to lower the federal voting age to sixteen, and that has a lot to do with what I have seen already of the power and the potential of youth leadership. And I think that the comments that were made by Sarah just a moment ago, where we heard the benefits um, and the forward thinking in investing more in the leadership of youth and and women. And I agree also with uh, General Dallaire that uh, there needs to be more specific emphasis on children and youth, but I also think that they fit very well together and the Security Council resolutions that relate to peace and security. Yes, it's absolutely true. I appreciated the shout out to um, Dr. Lloyd Axworthy, the former president of the university that, uh, that I was teaching at for some time. And I think that we also, though, need to expand our understanding of human security and really get serious about the climate implications of security and the way in which right now part of what Canada has been doing and I'm not criticizing us for this I think we have to do it is that we're kind of like running around the world trying to plug the holes the flood um, that is having a terrible impact on human beings particularly on women as a result of the withdrawal of the United States and withdrawal of massive amounts of money in building the capacity of people to work on peace. Because in fact, peace happens locally. And um, we keep thinking often and talking often about this being a global issue, and it is, but it's only changed at the local level, at the community level. And so being able to make that linkage, as frankly, women in leadership positions were doing this a long time ago, identifying climate, identifying the way in which the corporatization of the environment by their national governments and the impact that was having and is having on their communities and their families. And for the most part, when you look at the environmentalists who've been murdered, they've been women. And I think that this is an opportunity for us as a country, as a small country, as a country that has led certainly in the the Pearson years with a lot of the ideas, including um, peacemakers, to continue to push for the content and the follow through and the delivery. And again, the investment in youth leadership in women's leadership, and that brings an investment in children as well. Thank you, uh, Senator Mephedrin. 
Uh, Ferry, would you like to uh, comment on this? Very, very, very rapidly because the time is fleeing. But I, I think one of the key points is the damage done by the U.S. administration in terms of the credibility of the environmental threat. And, and, and I again, and I agree entirely with Senator McFadden on that one. It, it's we will be we will be hit. And then all of a sudden we'll discover, oh, yes, they were right. But I, I think there's got to be an effort made to reduce the hubris of the way people address the environment. It's, and, and that's where what Serge is doing and is, is fact, the facts, the facts, the facts. And if we can hammer the facts on environment as opposed to making it such a kind of ideological dimension of course it's fundamental and as such it, it has that ideological propensity but it's easy to attack an ideology harder to attack facts and i think that's where the iep and other efforts to accredit over and beyond even the un institution but some of the private sector organization dealing with the research on those issues and come up with the facts but don't forget we're going to be hitting facts against trolls and all of the other lovely things that the new internet society has provided us with. Thank you very much, Ferry. Um, well, it's true, we have come to the, uh, the end of our scheduled hour for these discussions. Oh. Um, I would really, first, I would like to thank all our speakers for agreeing to join us today. So General Dallaire, Ferry, Senator McFedrin, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedules and sharing your knowledge with us. Um, Serge, I think the work that the Institute for Economic Peace are doing is fantastic. And I hope yeah. that our policymakers will use your research to make important decisions. And I hope we will continue to collaborate of Canadian organizations with the Institute for Economics and Peace. So um, thank you very much. And, sure. um, and thank you for, uh, for this excellent event.